Amen. Well, good evening. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is good to be with the people of God on the Lord's Day. We are continuing through this Pauline letter, this letter of Paul to the church of God in the city of Corinth. And we've noticed, we've noticed thus far in our study that this church has some problems, like every church. And the problem that Paul is specifically addressing in this passage is the problem of divisions, of disunity. Some in the church were guilty of following after personalities. They were aligning themselves with their favorite tribes. They were playing favorites. And they were specifically tempted to follow after those men, those preachers who were the best preachers in their estimation. They were aligning themselves with the men that had the most eloquent preaching skills. And they were certainly unimpressed with Paul. In terms of rhetorical flair and professional polish, Paul was nothing to write home about, which will become even more clear as we make our way through this letter. But as we will see tonight, Paul did have a humble simplicity to his ministry. He wasn't the flashiest. He wasn't the most remarkable. He wasn't the most impressive. But he was a humble, faithful servant who delivered a message a message that had been given to him. And when that is done, when the gospel is simply and humbly communicated, when the message of the cross is proclaimed in unpretentious, unadorned clarity, the gospel is magnified and God Himself is glorified rather than the man preaching. And let's read together 1 Corinthians 1, 10-17 when we'll be focusing on 14-17. Hear the word of our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Paul did preach a clear gospel. And that that gospel has been preached by faithful men. It has been passed down from generation to generation within the church. And that that gospel has reached us. That we have the same gospel that Christ died in the place of sinners. Lord, help us to be clear and to be humble in our proclamation of the Word, the Word of Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's begin by looking at verses 14 through 16 and notice 
Paul's manner of ministry. His manner of ministry, and that is a posture of humility. He was humble. Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may, be said, may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, at first glance, this looks like a strange statement, right? To hear an apostle say, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. Isn't that part of his great commission? Isn't he supposed to be baptizing folks? Why is he thankful he didn't baptize anyone? Well, he isn't saying here that baptism is unimportant. We'll cover that a little bit later. But what he is saying is that he's glad that in God's providence, he hadn't been the one who had baptized the majority of the Corinthian believers so that there was less of a distraction in this debate. The debate was centered around the various tribes that had formed within the Corinthian church, various factions, and Paul is thankful that he didn't have a tribe as far as baptism is concerned. And specifically for us, we can note the humility that Paul is showing here. He wasn't looking for a following. If anyone could have garnered a following in Corinth, it would be the Apostle Paul. But he wasn't trying to do that. He wasn't trying to recruit a group of fans and make for himself a camp. He puts no special value in baptizing converts. He was called to preach. Now, some divisive ones had risen up in the church, and they wanted a following. They wanted a, a tribe. They wanted acolytes. They wanted followers to themselves. And it's a real temptation for all of us in any stage of life to, to want to have a team, a posse, a group of adoring fans. You see in school, children of all ages trying to be the funny one or trying to be the class clown or trying to be the smartest person in the class or the most athletic or the most beautiful, or whatever. They want the attention and they want the praise of the crowd. They want the awe of all the onlookers. And if we're honest, we don't really grow out of that temptation. We all want to have a following of adoring fans. We all want glory of some kind. We want to be great. We want praise. We want honor. We want importance. We want influence. We want people to think we're really beautiful or we're really smart, or we're really clever, we're really funny. We want to be the best teacher, or the best dressed, or the best parent, or the best child, or the best whatever. And most of all, we want people to notice. We want to be seen. We want people to point it out and to talk about us, and to praise us. We want glory. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. God has called us to the opposite of this behavior. He's taught us that His kingdom operates with this principle. That the first will be last, and the last will be first. But we don't like that. We want to be the first. We want to be the best. And we want the people in the back to serve us. We want to receive praise. We want glory. In short, we want to be like God. We want what Satan promised Adam in the garden for our eyes to be opened and for us to be like God himself. And just like Adam, we choose to take that which doesn't belong to us. But we don't merely take a piece of fruit that was forbidden. We want to take the praise and the glory that belongs to God himself and we want to redirect it towards me. But Paul knows what the Corinthians needed to hear. And he knows what we need to hear. Keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 1 and flip over to Philippians chapter 2. 
Just a few books of the Bible later to Philippians chapter 2. If you remember from last week's sermon, Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 1 verse 10 that they needed to have the same mind among themselves. They needed to be thinking correctly, which is the same language that he uses here in Philippians 2. Look at Philippians 2 verse 5. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity they should have through having the same mind. Unity rather than division through thinking similarly. And what was it that they needed to have in their minds? What was it that they needed to consider to keep in the center of their thinking? And the answer that Corinth needed to hear and the answer that the church of God in Philippi needed to hear was humility. They needed to remember the humility of Christ. The next verse in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, and more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look after not only his own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind, there's that word again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The unity they seek is found in considering the mind of Christ. Unity possessed by thinking about the situation the way that God thinks about it. Or specifically, considering themselves the same way that Christ considered himself. Well, how was that? Paul goes on to say, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what is this same mind? The church is united when they have the mind of humility unto death. That's the mind of Christ. Humility unto death, not earthly glory and fame-seeking, not seeking to have a tribe and a faction and a posse of people proclaiming how wonderful we are. Humble service to the grave. That's the calling of a Christian. Not glamorous. Humble service to the grave. And that's what Christ has done for us. You see, we've wronged God. We have sinned against God. We have proudly sought after the forbidden fruit of glory and of praise, the praise of men, and we've ruptured unity and we've fractured peace. But Christ Himself has come and He has emptied Himself to nothing. He came to serve. He came to wash. He came to redeem. He came to comfort. He came to help others. He wasn't concerned with earthly reputations and promoting His own platform. He was moved by love and compelled by compassion. He focused on others and securing their good rather than using others for his own good pleasure. In short, he became the last. He became the lowest. He became a servant. He became slave, we could translate it. And remember the kingdom logic we mentioned earlier. The first will be last and the last will be first. Well, that logic applies here in Philippians 2. Because he humbled himself to nothing, he has been elevated above everything. He became last, and God has made him first. Look at verse 9. Therefore... 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ became nothing and God gave him everything. He acted like he was the lowest slave and he has been crowned with the highest of crowns. He became as one who had no rights, a slave, a bondservant. And this one with no rights has been given authority over heaven and earth and everything under the earth. That's the Christ of the gospel and the Christ that's offered to us tonight. The Christ that is lowly and humble and yet rules over all things. He's the faithful priest that will wash you of your sins and the faithful, faithful king that is ready to lead you through all of life. He's offered you forgiveness of your sins and the washing of the Holy Spirit and unity with Him and with His bride. You see, He was humble, and His humility can be counted in the place of your pride. He was lowly, and His modesty can be counted instead of your glory-seeking. And not only that, He promises His Holy Spirit to help guide you and to make you genuinely humble. That's the good hope of growth in this life. By the power of the Holy Spirit alone can you make actual and lasting growth in the area of humility. And so in Christ, you can become a humble unifier in the church of God rather than a proud divider. And why is that? Well, in, in Christ, you're given the full acceptance and love of the Father so that you no longer need to clamor for the praise of your peers. In Christ, you're given a glorious inheritance in heaven, so you no longer have to grab after the fleeting glory of men. In Christ, you've been given a new name, a heavenly name, a divine name, so that you no longer have to promote your own name among men. And in Christ, you're given a new status. You're given the status of a child of the King of all creation. And so you don't have to bite and devour one another to protect your name among men. God sees you and loves you perfectly in Christ, so you no longer have to battle to protect your reputation. You've been given a new name. And so in some, Christ was not pursuing earthly fame and fortune and prestige. Simply put, Christ was humble rather than glory-seeking. And you too can be like Him if you would but come and believe the message, the good news of the Gospel. And I urge you, come tonight. Don't wait a single day lest you be found boastful on the day of Christ's return. You would thereby be under His judgment. Be reconciled to Him and to His bride this night merely by believing in Him and His humility. Second, we've seen Paul's humble manner of ministry. Now let's look at Paul's formula for faithful ministry. Paul's formula for faithful ministry. Paul speaks in verse 17 and in many more verses after that about the foundation of a faithful ministry being simple preaching. Simple preaching of the gospel. And preaching is an important theme in this text and in the following verses and indeed throughout the rest of this book. And so we're going to spend the rest of this evening looking at some aspects of Paul's theology of preaching. Look again at verse 17. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so note here in this verse the primacy of preaching, the primacy that Paul places on preaching. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, to preach the gospel. And we see in that statement something of a relation between baptism and preaching in Paul's mind. Baptism is important. Paul will say that elsewhere. But it is inferior in importance to preaching. Making disciples is the primary objective, and baptizing is merely marking them out as such, disciples. But this, preaching, preaching is the front lines of the kingdom. As one commentator puts it, preaching is the spearhead of the Christian mission. And we'll talk more on that in a minute, but for now, let's notice some clear implications of Paul's theology of preaching in this verse. A first clear implication of his argument is that baptism does not effect salvation. Baptism does not effect salvation. It doesn't bring about salvation. It may not, been, may not have been the first thing that pops into your mind or something that you've ever thought about, but it's a clear implication of Paul's argument. It's not a matter of who baptizes you or even that you're baptized at all that makes you a Christian. Only a Holy Spirit-wrought, faith-filled response to the proclamation of the cross can do that. The proclamation of the gospel accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man is what makes a Christian, not the act of baptism. That's important. And if that were not the case, if baptism was the thing that saves you and that makes you a part of the kingdom of God, then Paul's whole argument here doesn't make any sense. He would have been sent to baptize, not to preach, if that were the case. But that's not the case. And indeed, this verse and the following two chapters, well, really the rest of the letter makes this clear. Baptism does not effect our salvation. Second, a second clear implication of his arguments, and hopefully an encouraging one for you, is that simple proclamation of the truth is enough. Simple proclamation of the truth is enough. The simple teaching of the gospel is enough. It's enough for parents. It's enough for Sunday school teachers. And we just heard Jordan mention a minute ago, Martha Zeber taught one of our current pastors Sunday school 50 years ago probably, the simple gospel. And it brought about salvation. The simple proclamation of the truth is enough for Sunday school teachers, for preachers. And we'll expand more on this later, but we don't have to embellish the gospel. The gospel in its simple presentation is sufficient to save, it's sufficient to preserve, it's sufficient to sanctify and make holy, and it's sufficient to hold us until the final day. A third implication of Paul's argumentation here is that we need to be on guard against the temptation to focus on secondary matters while neglecting the primary. We need to focus, we need to be on guard against the temptation to focus on secondary matters while neglecting the primary. You see, churches can focus on the sacraments like baptism or the Lord's Supper while their pulpits starve the flock the truth of the Word. 
Preachers can be feeding the congregation milk rather than gospel-saturated meat of the cross of Christ. Churches throughout the SBC are led this way. Just come in, just get baptized, just get on the roll, join a Sunday school, and we'll figure out the rest later. But the problem is that doesn't ever happen. Their preaching isn't sufficient to bring a disciple to maturity. So you end up with a congregation of, at best, immature disciples, or at worst, self-deceived unbelievers. Churches can be tempted to focus on secondary ministries to the neglect of the primary preaching. Churches can focus on small groups so much that they neglect the corporate Lord's Day gathering. Or they can focus on the music ministry and all of its production such that the ministry of the Word is kind of a byproduct or an afterthought. Or they can focus on women's ministry or men's ministry in such a way that the proclamation of God's Word is optional. Or they can focus on social improvements and justice issues such that the preaching of the gospel that Christ died to save sinners becomes obscured in favor of the real work of solving poverty or abolishing abortion or reforming education or whatever else. And those are good and noble things, but when they come to replace the primary preaching ministry of a church, the cross will be emptied of its power. Paul sees preaching as the primary, the crucial, the frontline ministry of a man that's called and sent by God, and by extension, the primary ministry of a church that's been set apart by God. And we must never forget the primacy of preaching, of regular, week in, week out, simple faithful, unadorned preaching of the cross of Christ. But merely affirming the importance of preaching, the primacy of preaching, is not enough. Paul also needs to address the method of preaching. That is, it must be simple. It must be simple, not with eloquent words of wisdom, Paul says, literally, not with the wisdom of words. We could Say, the loftiness of man's eloquent words. See, the gospel is the crown jewel of God's plan of salvation. It's Christ's love gift to His bride. It needs no adornment. It needs no improvement. The proclamation of the good news that Christ died for sinners is the main event. It's the star attraction. We can't do anything to make it more powerful. We can't do anything to make it more appealing, more effective, more palatable, more beautiful. And in fact, when we try to do any of those things, we distort it. You can't change the message without changing its power. You can't adapt the mode of its delivery without distorting the gospel itself. And that's why Paul says he wasn't sent to preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. You see, there were in Paul's day just as there are in our day today, men who would so adjust the delivery of the message that the result is that they gut the message of its power. And they zap all the power from their pulpit. And we must be on guard against these temptations to adjust the preaching ministry in a way that undermines the power of God in the simple proclamation of the gospel. Well, what does that look like? Well, there... There are many ways that this can be done, that the cross can be emptied of its power. A, a first way that a pulpit ministry can be undermined as the church is through speculation rather than proclamation. 
speculation rather than proclamation. Some men are speculative preachers. They seek to wow their listeners through lofty speech and through abstraction, through philosophizing. They can spin together a dizzying array of complex arguments and speculative spinning such that their dazzling intellect and their rhetorical flair are much more impactful than the message of the cross itself. They undermine the power of the cross. A second way to undermine the, the cross is to undermine the authority of God's Word while preaching. To undermine the authority of God's Word. Let me give you an example. Some preachers might, intentionally or unintentionally, bring in an outside source like science as the foundational authority. You may have heard preaching like this before. They might say something like, the Bible says it's better for marriage to have one husband and one wife. And we know that's true because of this study and this study and this study done by the Pew Research Council. And the Bible says it's better for a child to be raised by two committed, involved parents, which this study and this study and this study also confirm. Do you see the problem there? The Word is no longer the final source of authority. The Word is only true inasmuch as science backs it up. And this subtle undermining of the power and the authority of Scripture is not new. It's not new at all. Lloyd-Jones wrote about this. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this several years ago. He said, while men, deliver, while men believed in the Scriptures as the authoritative Word of God and spoke on the basis of that authority, you had great preaching. But once that went, men began to speculate and to theorize and to put up hypotheses and so on. And the eloquence and the greatness of the spoken Word declined and began to wane. You, really, you cannot really deal with speculations and conjectures the same way preaching had previously dealt with the great themes of Scripture. But as belief in the great doctrines of the Bible began to go out and sermons were replaced by ethical addresses and homilies, it is not surprising that preaching then declined. The Scriptures must be the authoritative foundation of any preacher's message. And when that foundation is undermined or tampered with, all manner of things will take its place and the power of the cross will be removed. Third, a third way men can undermine the power of the gospel in preaching is when they fail to preach to whole people. When they fail to preach to whole people. What I mean by that is that some preachers can undermine the power of gospel preaching by speaking merely to one aspect of the people in the pew. They may talk true biblical doctrine, but they do it in a way that's divorced from the heart, for example, and doesn't connect to the man or woman in the pew. These men preach as if the congregation is full of mere brains that need instructing, rather than whole persons who need saving. Preaching must be the act of a whole man engaging all of God's Word and delivering it to all of God's people. People have minds, yes, but they also have hearts. They have wills, they have desires, they have fears, they have anxieties. And if you read the Scriptures, that's how Jesus dealt with people, as whole persons. That's how Paul preached to people. 
And that's how we ought to do it. Fourth, a fourth way that the pulpit can be undermined is when men give in to the temptation to tickle ears rather than preach the word. When men give in to the temptation to tickle ears rather than preach the word. And this temptation, Paul warns about in 2 Timothy 4.3 when he says about the time that's coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, it's, it's actually really easy to fill a church, to raise money and to get a following and to expand a big platform by preaching sermons that scratch the itching ears of listeners. But a man of God is called to preach the gospel, and he must never go down that road. And Paul knows that, and he warns against that. Preaching to itching ears is a perennial temptation for a preacher, and so too to a congregation who will be tempted to find a man who will only preach as to scratch their itches. Fifth, a fifth way that the preaching of the cross can be diminished in its power is by turning preaching into a profession, into a job, rather than a calling from God. When you turn preaching into a profession rather than a calling from God. See, churches, seminaries, denominations can undermine the proclamation of the gospel by raising up polished pulpiteers rather than humble prophets. And these professional preachers, we could call them, they ooze with self-confidence. They speak with authority. They never have any doubt. And they're winsome. They're polished, they're refined, they're eloquent. And from a fleshly perspective, they are effective. Again, to quote Lloyd-Jones about these men, he says, they were pulpiteers rather than preachers. And I mean that they were men who could occupy a pulpit and dominate it. They could dominate the people. They were professionals. There was a good deal of showmanship in them and in their work. They were experts in handling congregations and in playing on their emotions. In the end, they could do almost whatever they liked with them. That is the congregation. God's church ought not to be marked with this kind of professionalized, polished pulpiteering that marks many pulpits. Simple, God-exalting, man-humbling, sinner-redeeming gospel proclamation is what ought to mark the church of God. A sixth and final way that the pulpit ministry of a church can undermine the power of the cross is when men fail to preach the whole truth. When men fail to preach the whole truth. You see, men may preach the truth. They may even preach biblical truth, God's truth. But they may do it in a truncated, minimized way that has the effect of conveying untruth. Maybe they preach morality. They preach right and wrong, biblical truth, but they preach it in a way without any regard to faith or to faith in Christ. Maybe they always preach the second commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself, but they do so without ever mentioning the first and greatest commandment of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Maybe they preach the Old Testament, but they do it without preaching Christ at all. They preach 
the Old Testament in a way that would not offend a soul in a Jewish synagogue, which is to say they aren't preaching a Christian sermon at that point. It's entirely possible. Indeed, it's actually easy to preach a Christian text in an unchristian way. It's easy to preach mentioning Christ or to preach even about Christ without ever preaching Christ Himself. Or maybe the preacher believes all the right things, but he fails to mention sin. He never talks about law or repentance or turning. He fails to preach in a way that would ever offend the conscience of someone sitting before him. Right? What they've done is they're preaching a gospel that has no offense to a congregation that doesn't really need saving, about a Savior who didn't really need to die, in the place of a people who never really sinned to begin with and haven't really offended a holy God. These men in their words of eloquent wisdom preach partial truth and they act as if it's the whole truth, which ends up deceiving. J.I. Packer once said that a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth comes, becomes a complete untruth. And that's what happens. The man of God is called to deliver the message. He's not called to distort it. He's the herald. He's not the author. He doesn't have the right. He's an ambassador. He doesn't have the authority to adjust the king's message. And he does so at his own peril. We must be on guard against such temptations to undermine the teaching of the church or anywhere else, just as Paul says, because the cross will be made of no value. That's the result of preaching with eloquent words of wisdom, Paul says. The cross is emptied of its power. Or we could say the cross of Christ made of no effect or made void. It's useless. It's worthless. The cross is made inoperative, powerless, when we focus on eloquent words of wisdom rather than the plain preaching of the gospel. We make the preaching, or we're tempted to make the preaching of the gospel more about the man that speaks it rather than the object of the message. We tend to create disciples of a man rather than disciples of Christ. We make followers of Apollo or Peter or Paul or some other preacher. And that's what makes the cross powerless. The gospel becomes irrelevant at that point because Christ isn't their Savior anymore. It's the preacher. The preacher becomes the Messiah. And when we make preaching more about followers or numbers or statistics or getting people in the door or getting their names on the roll, then we've We'll, we'll be tempted to try and remove the offense from the gospel. Remove whatever might turn people away. Ugly words like sin and repentance and holiness. But to do so means to do away with the message of the cross. And not to preempt the next sermon on verse 18, but the power of the gospel lies in its offense. The gospel is offensive because it reveals our own inadequacy to save ourselves. It reminds us that we need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. We have actually offended a holy God. We have violated His standard. And we are in need of redemption. And the foolishness of the gospel is that Christ, the God-man, has come down to earth to do exactly that. That's the Christmas message. That he was born of a woman, and he lived a sinless life, and he died a convict's death, and he was raised from the grave three days later. That's the offensive message of the gospel. 
That God would become nothing so that sinners might be forgiven everything and made part of God's own family. It doesn't matter how evil, how wicked, how sinful, how depraved you are. God became man so that you might be forgiven. You see, you might be a prideful, divisive person, just like Paul is addressing in this letter. Just like some of the Corinthians. Or you might be a thief, or an adulterer, or a drunkard, or a fighter. A brawler, as Paul says, or a murderer even. But the message of the cross is that you can be forgiven and made righteous no matter how far gone you might feel or how much evil you've done. Nobody is outside of the power of the cross. Nobody is beyond the scope of Christ's power. That's the foolishness of the cross, and that's the power. That's the power of the cross. A message that something done outside of us, in fact, done in spite of us, in order to help us do what we could never do. And it was all done out of grace and given to us as a free gift, not the result of our own good deeds or acts of righteousness. That's the glorious offense of the gospel. Won't you believe in that glorious, powerful message of the cross? That humble and effective, saving message. Come and believe and Turn from your sins and have Christ's very own righteousness counted to you. Have His forgiveness. You can have the cleansing of the Holy Spirit and heavenly comfort and divine anointing and adoption into God's own family. And best of all, God will be your God and you will be part of His people forever. Come to Christ this very night and don't wait any longer. This powerful message is sufficient to save anyone, anyone that would come to Christ. That's the good news of the offensive folly of the gospel that we have. And before we leave tonight, we have another reminder of the folly of the gospel, the foolishness of the gospel, that Christ came out of love for His people. And that's the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's a visible picture of Christ proclaiming His love for His people. You see, He humbled Himself to nothing, to death on a cross, He humbled himself to shed the shedding of blood and the breaking of his own body that his people might be saved. And this picture of the foolishness of the cross is on display. If you're a believer and you've come to Christ and you're marked by the fruit of discipleship found in Acts 2, that is devoted to the apostolic teaching of God's word, to the fellowship with the saints, to breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. If you haven't yet come to Christ, then let these plates pass, believe on Christ, and be baptized in His name, and then you can join us at His table. If you're seated at the end of a row, I ask you to let the ropes down so that our table servants can pass right in front of you. I'll pray, and then our table servants will come and serve us. Holy Father, we praise You for the gift of grace found in the work of Jesus Christ. We thank You for this time, for these elements pray that you would set them apart, that you would strengthen your body, that you would keep your people, that you would mold them and make them more into your image as they partake of this gift and as they meditate once again upon the truth that it pictures that Christ's body was shed in our place and that there's no more wrath for us. We are forgiven. We have been made clean. Nourish us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.